0: Good morning. Good morning. Wow, it's been a while. It's been a while. Sarah and Jeremy. We can all kind of see each other down here, but we also have the Reese's up there. Reese's, little shout out. There we go. And my family's right up there. I don't invite them to do a shout out because they're really loud. <laughs> Um, happy Father's Day to all of you who are fathers. Um, thankful for uh, the way that the Lord is a father to us, as Joey was praying earlier. And it's good to be back together again, to a certain extent, this small gathering, and we also want to acknowledge those of you who are out there experiencing the live stream, the real-time live stream, that we haven't tried before this morning. So we're glad for all of you who are out there. We we want to see you soon. We're Trusting that some of you will be here the next two weeks, but we we love you all, and um, may the Lord continue to bless you and minister to you even through the service this morning. Well, did you appreciate Tyler's sermon last week? I did too. I did too. I'm actually going to use one of his illustrations in a minute, but before I get to that, I want to say this. Um, There's a quote that's typically attributed to St. Augustine when it comes to the book of John. It's not necessarily confirmed, but typically it's attributed to him. And if you read commentaries on John, it's pretty much 100% assured that every single one of them will mention this quote. And the quote is this, the gospel of John is deep enough for an elephant to swim in, yet shallow enough for a child not to drown in. I hope that you're experiencing that a little bit as we get into John. You're going to experience it for sure today, I pray, because you're going to start to see language used in a way that's not always incredibly clear. There are different levels of understanding, some double entendre that sometimes John uses for the purpose of explaining two different yet connected ideas. Okay? It's the depth of the Gospel of John. But at the same time, I don't want you to walk out thinking, whoo, the Gospel of John has my head spinning, I can't understand any of this. Because it is shallow enough, it, maybe a better word is clear enough, that we should be able to understand the purposes of a loving God towards a lost people, clearly throughout the Gospel. Deep enough for an elephant, shallow enough for a child. Have you been engaged in the reading with the Word this, this summer? I hope you have been. It's something that, that Tyler and Jordan have been putting together as the interns so that there are readings that we're doing every day together as a church that help inform our understanding of John. Okay? If you need a copy of one of those, let us know. We can send you a copy this week. You can also get those through the emails that, are be, that have been going out from the church office. If that's a little too complicated for you, I'll just encourage you to do this. Read the sermon passage that's coming up for the next week, every week. We can also get you the the sermon passages for all the way through this series that goes through the middle of September. And then continue reading through the book of John. Read through 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation. They're all books that the Holy Spirit used John to author. And so in these ways, you'll get a fuller understanding of the depth of the wonder of God that John is trying to communicate. Okay? So get into it in that way. This morning, we are going to get into the waters of John, the end of John chapter 2 and the beginning of John chapter 3. If you want to use the Bible in front of you, it's page 887 in that Bible. Again, the text will be John 2, beginning in verse 13, going through 321. Jordan just read it to us, and as you find it, let me pray for our time this morning. Uh, Lord, it is good to gather in the house of the Lord. But Lord, we also say that we confess, we realize, we believe that what is here is not the fullness of the house of the Lord. The fullness of the house of the Lord is you, Jesus, and the family that you are gathering in together for the Father. So this morning, as we spend a few minutes in John 2 and 3, O Holy Spirit, would you use your word to shape us as a people? Help us to see clearly what you're saying. Help us to be humble and allow ourselves to be challenged by your word. And would you exalt yourself, Jesus, among us, that we might look on you and continue to believe. We again thank you for this morning, and I pray that you would, through your spirit, be ministering to those who are watching this morning as well. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen. So I referenced uh, Tyler's illustration from last week. He started off the sermon talking about where's Waldo all right, talking about this idea that the Where's Waldo books—it's a book. When you unfold it, it's about the size of the of the podium here, and it has these big situations, and you're looking at all of the details for this red and white striped, shirted and hatted dude with some sun or with some glasses on, and the object is obviously to find Waldo. Okay, I always liked Waldo. I always—I also used to like the Richard Scarry books way back in the day. Maybe I'm kind of dating myself. But the Richard Scarry books also were similar to to Where's Waldo because they have lots of detail, lots of characters, lots of things going on. They always reminded me of life in the city. Hustle and bustle, people doing different things all the time. Well, if you can get that idea of Richard Scarry or Where's Waldo in your mind, think of it like this. I want to take it a step further. Think of all of a sudden Where's Waldo, where we're looking down on it, All of a sudden, we go to Google Street View and we're down in Waldo's situation. We're the same size as the people in the Where's Waldo pages. And then the lights go out. Then the lights go out. And all of a sudden, you know there are a lot of people around you, but you're not exactly sure what's going on. And you're not exactly sure how to process where you are, and what to do next. Have that idea in your mind a little bit as we consider where we're going here in John 2. I want us to understand as we go through the book of John, and specifically today, that we want to see Christ, the light of the world, interact in situations and with characters all around that darkened scene. And we're there too. How does Christ, the light of the world, shine brightly in that darkness? And how do people respond to him? Last week, the setting of that section that Tyler preached from, it was the Jordan River, John baptizing. It was smaller towns like Bethsaida in the region of Galilee. Okay, It's a little bit more of a rural, bucolic setting. This is where Jesus was last week. He interacted with Andrew and Peter, Philip and Nathaniel, and these four, who he called to himself, they said, we have found Jesus. Jesus also said, I have found you. And some of them, thinking specifically of, of Nathanael, as, as Tyler made such a good point last week, Nathaniel came to know the joy of Christ through the joy that Philip had, and he introduced Nathaniel to Jesus. These four characters who had been influenced by the ministry of John the Baptist, witnessing to the Messiah, Jesus himself. And as soon as Jesus showed up, John says, There he is, the Lamb of the world. And they turned from John and followed Jesus. The light showed up in their darkness and they followed the light. A little bit later, Jesus turns the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And the disciples saw the glory of God in Christ. He was elevated from not just a messianic figure, a good teacher, but to God himself in their eyes. The Spirit gave them that understanding. Well, we come to a new setting this week. You turn the Where's Waldo page, a new setting this week. They have now moved on to Jerusalem, the capital city, Herod's city, the temple city. A city that's already full of people, typically, but this time, right now, it's the Passover. So every Jew within walking distance of Jerusalem would make their way to Jerusalem for this annual celebration of the Passover. Furthermore, there would be pilgrims that had heard the calling of the Lord from far and wide that would say, You know, I'm going to go to the Passover this year. I'm going to make my pilgrimage there and be with the people that God is calling me to be. Though I may be a Gentile, though I may be a Jew that lives in Greece or Turkey or somewhere else, I am going to go to Jerusalem and worship at the temple. So it is a crowded place. It is a place of political and religious power, a center of worship. The temple itself was one of the most beautiful buildings in all of antiquity. Herod the Great had begun building it about 20 AD. This is around 27 or 28 A.D. It wasn't finished until 64 A.D. It was only about two-thirds of the way in in construction, yet already it was recognized as this wonder of antiquity. And the Jewish, the Jewish people flocked to it. This is our place of worship, and it is it is the pride. It is the pride. Of Israel, There are new characters to be met this morning as well. Those still dwelling in darkness and a little bit of foreshadowing. These are characters that are not as ready for the Messiah, not as ready to hear from who could be the Messiah as those who John had influenced already. New situation, New characters. Our main question for this morning is this What does Jesus find? What does Jesus find when he, the light of the world, pierces the darkness? What does Jesus find when he, the light of the world, pierces the darkness? Well, the first answer to that question is this, found in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Jesus finds a dark house. He finds a dark house. Look at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found, pause real quick there, remember last week, I I mentioned it earlier, remember last week Tyler talked about them finding Jesus and him finding them. Now John transitions into Jesus finding something here, but it's not like he found his disciples. Jesus found. Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. Let me help, under, help you understand what's going on here. What's happening is this is a market that has been set up to facilitate the sacrificial system that God put forth through Moses in the Old Testament the people needed to come and sacrifice unblemished animals. Well, as I told you before, people are coming from all over the place. Some of them might not even be farmers, so they don't necessarily have an unblemished bull or sheep. So they're coming to the temple to worship, but they need to bring a sacrifice in order to approach God. So religious pragmatism now has this market set up Here in the temple, and they're selling unblemished animals near to the temple so the pilgrims could get them so that they could approach God and fulfill the sacrifice. The money changers who were there, they were performing the duty of a currency exchange of sorts. People would come with their various types of currency, some of which were Roman and had the picture of Caesar on them. Those coins were considered idolatrous. They weren't able to be in the temple. So, the money changers would come and they would, for a small fee, exchange money for people so there was a common currency being used as they purchased their animals for the sacrifice. Seems innocent enough, but listen to this description of what was actually going on. At Passover, everyone in the world who was an adult male and wished to worship at the temple would bring his offering or purchase a sacrificial animal at the temple. Since there was no acceptance of foreign money with any foreign image, the money changers would sell temple coinage at a very high rate of exchange and assess a fixed charge for their services. Meanwhile, the judges, who sat to inspect the offerings to make sure they were without blemish, were quick to detect any blemish in them. This was expensive for even the wealthy pilgrims, not to say how ruinous this was for the poor, who could only offer their turtle doves and pigeons. There was no defense for them or court of appeal, seeing that the priestly authorities took a large percentage of every transaction. What we need to catch here is this. Religious and social pragmatism ...systematized injustice and oppressed worshipers. Religious and social pragmatism... ...systematized injustice and oppressed worshipers. But let's go further. Where does all of this take place? It takes place in the court of the Gentiles... Here's how the temple was set up. It had these courts that progressively moved inward. And it was understood that holiness increased as you, as you moved inward. You had the court of the Gentiles on the outside. Everyone was allowed there. In from there, you had the court of women. The Israelite women were allowed there. After that, you had the court of the Israelites. Israelite men were allowed there. Inside of that court, you had the court of the priests. The priests were allowed there, and inside of that you had the Holy of Holies. Holiness moved inward because the Holy of Holies was understood to be the dwelling place of God. Where is this market? It is in the court of the Gentiles. Why is this significant? Well, you have to understand this. You have to understand the purpose, the ultimate purpose of the temple. This was Herod's temple that he had been rebuilding after the original temple had been destroyed. I want to take you back. You don't have to turn there, but just listen um, to 1 Kings chapter 8. In 1 Kings 8, we see Solomon's temple being blessed by Solomon himself. David had been given the the commission to build, but then God said, wait a minute, your son is actually going to build it. It is now built, and Solomon is dedicating it. Listen to this. This is the purpose overall of the temple. God will indeed dwell on the earth. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. This is Solomon praying. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes, O Lord, may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel. And when they pray toward this place, And listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. The temple was meant to be a place where God's people could gather and pray towards it, acknowledging God's presence there, and ask for forgiveness. But it doesn't end there. Listen to this. Later on in 1 Kings 8, Solomon continues to pray. Likewise, O Lord, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake for they shall hear of your great name they shall hear of it and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm when he comes this foreigner and prays toward this house here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So even foreigners are invited through the temple system to pray to the name of the Lord. And finally, Solomon ends his prayer with this benediction. He says this, Let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, and may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. Solomon is crying out to the Lord, pleading with him that he would help him as king and they, the Israelites, as his people, to continue to walk in the covenant commandments that the world may know that God is the true king. Approaching his holiness through the temple, through his people. See, the nations were not abandoned by the Father. They were meant to approach and worship God through the conduit of the temple and the sacrificial system. But imagine this. Imagine that you are now back in the time of Jesus, 27 A.D. or so. And you are a foreigner. And you have sensed the call of the Lord to draw near to Yahweh. Maybe you overheard something at your local synagogue in Ephesus Or maybe you were in Rome seeing Jews persecuted and you thought, how can they be so steadfast? Who is behind this faith in this one true God? And in whatever way it happens, you sense inwardly this inward call to approach Yahweh. And you come to understand Yahweh dwells Not at the temple, as Solomon says, he dwells in the heavens above, but this is the place where the people come to pray, to approach God as God has called them to do. And so you say, I know that the pilgrims come at Passover. I'm going to spend my money to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem this year. And when I get there, I will approach the temple and I will ask for forgiveness Because the calling of the Lord has brought a conviction of sin in me where I realize I cannot just come to him just as I am. There is a sacrifice that must be offered so that I can approach him purely. And they arrive at Jerusalem. And they approach the temple. And they enter the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles is a bazaar. The court of the Gentiles is a cattle market. The court of the Gentiles smells like cattle dung. The court of the Gentiles is full of loud voices, not loud voices crying for forgiveness, but loud voices boasting the best prices. And they come into this place to approach God and ask for forgiveness and what do they find loud boastful voices in their place for prayer and then they see the Jews come in those who are rich buying their bull or their lamb those who are poor as Leviticus allows for buying just turtle doves or pigeons to then take into the inner courts and have sacrificed that they might know forgiveness and what Do they see as they try to follow these placards, both in Greek and Latin, saying this, death to any Gentile who proceeds beyond this court. Imagine the disappointment. Imagine the, what do I do with this inward call, this this realization, I am not holy and there is a God who is holy, but I cannot even approach him. I can't even quiet myself to pray even in the court of the Gentiles because of this loud boasting of his people. What has Jesus found? He has found a dark house, systemic religious oppression, a sinful structure that has developed from religious and political expediency because they went hand in hand in Jerusalem, oppressing the poor and impeding the very plan of God to have all of the nations worship him. And so into this place of darkness, the light pierces. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus do? Look at verses 15 through 17. Back in chapter 2. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their temples. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I want us to sit in this and understand Jesus' zeal for justice. Jesus' zeal for justice. How did he respond to the systemic injustice of the temple? He acted with intentionality. He made that whip. He drove those animals out. He poured the money changers' tables onto the ground. And he also acted with nuance. Did you catch how he responded to the dove sellers? He didn't rip off the cages and the doves flew into the air. These precious birds that were for the poor, Jesus told their sellers, just take them away from here, please. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus' actions and his words were bold, strong, decisive. They were intentional, but they were also nuanced and wise still caring for the poor even as he is cleansing the temple. He also acted for a particular people in a particular situation because those particular people had been particularly marginalized. He understood what, what was happening here as he had found it. And he knew that he had to act On behalf of a particularly marginalized, specific people, he was driven in his actions and his words for the Father, driven by love for the Father and zeal for his Father to be worshiped. The lives of the poor mattered because their worship of God mattered. The lives of the Gentiles mattered because their worship of God mattered. Yet his zeal was seen in what he did for the poor and the Gentiles, not just his adherence to a slogan or a public statement on systemic temple injustice. If you understand here, Jesus could have been running through the temple saying, zeal for your house will consume me. He could have turned that into a slogan. Rather, it was the disciples who saw his action and remembered what the word said about him. Again, the main question for this morning is this. What does Jesus find when he, the light, pierces the darkness? But I want to add a little twist to that. It's not only what does Jesus find, but add this. What does he found? Because Jesus doesn't just find darkness when light comes in. He redeems. What Jesus finds a dark house, what does Jesus found? He founds or begins a new house. Look at verses 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temp- temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The Jews asked for a sign. What's your divine authority that allows you to do what you just did? Jesus answered with an answer of greater destruction, <laughs> which they could easily misinterpret. Listen, I cleaned that court of the Gentiles, destroy this whole place, and I'll build it again in three days. I'm sure the, the rulers of the Jews were aghast at his answer. Jesus made an active statement against injustice. But listen, what he did didn't last. What he did in cleansing that that court, they were back there again doing the same thing at the end of his ministry because in Holy Week, Jesus comes and does the exact same thing again. Jesus understood that though he acted and spoke, for the for the cause of the nations and the poor oftentimes systemic injustice is not just stopped in one fell swoop or one action or one protest or one single thing that is done and he also understood this that all injustice won't be made right until all is made right he knew there was greater destruction and greater rebuilding needed to fully restore justice. So he offered himself the destruction of his own body for the sake of raising a new temple. Jesus, the center of worship himself, the locus of all worship was going to be him. A center of worship raised up so that a people from every nation and tribe and tongue could see him and worship him. Jesus doesn't just expose. He redeems and makes new in himself. Jesus finds a dark house. He founds a new house. What else does Jesus find? Jesus finds dark hearts. John, the Gospel of John, as we've talked about, is about revealing the word. But that's not all that happens. It's not just helping the readers see what is unseen and making it seen in terms of who the word, the light of the world, Jesus is. It is also about revealing the hearts of men. Look at chapter 2 verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Let me read that again. Hear this. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. What we're seeing here is that people, based on the signs that Jesus was doing, they were believing in him, but he doesn't believe in them he's understanding that there's a contrast in John between true belief and false belief, which will be explored as we continue through this gospel. But right here, we can contrast very closely what true and false belief is here just in these two verses. Because look at verse 22. It says this, the disciples remembered that he had said this about his resurrection, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken True belief in Christ is a belief in his death and resurrection and a belief in what he says as true. False belief is just a curiosity, an awe struck posture towards his miracles, but not a personal trust in him, the Word, the God made flesh. So these people, the the Jews here that see him, they do not understand who he really is, why he's really here. They believe in the signs, but not in Jesus. And then he finishes that part by saying, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And in in an incredibly narrative way, John then says, and listen, you're about to meet one of those men. (laughs) He says... Jesus knows what is in man and here's one of those men his name is Nicodemus. So we move into chapter 3. Look at verse th- chapter 3 verse 1. Now there was a man there was a man of the Pharisees na- named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. What is in a man is meant to be seen in Nicodemus revealed by the light. We're not going to go we're not going to do a deep dive into this part of chapter 3 okay? Because for one thing, I'm going to come back to it when we meet Nicodemus later at the burial of Christ. That'll come late August, early September. But for right now, I want us to think this. Nicodemus is representative of what is in the heart of man, what Jesus knows about us. Darkness, for one, does not understand that's chapter 1, verse 5. The light came to the world, but the darkness did not understand it. The darkness did not overcome it. Again, it's the same word that has two different meanings. And here we're seeing Nicodemus not understanding, even though he is a man of great understanding as, the, as a ruler of the Jews. Darkness does not understand. Also in Nicodemus, we see that religious presuppositions are called into question by the piercing light of Jesus. People have their assumptions of what it means to know God. Jesus, the piercing light, doesn't let us rest in our assumptions or our presuppositions. He exposes them and calls us to truth. Also, in the heart of man, we look for signs from God, but we lack the eyes of faith to see Christ as God. And you also see in Nicodemus and in us, hearts that long for God, but we just can't seem to figure out how to actually know him. Out there, is that you? You have a longing for God, but you just can't quite figure out how to know him? That was Nicodemus also. So as I read verses 2 through 12, have those things, darkness does not understand, religious presuppositions by, seen by the piercing light, looking for signs but not seeing God and a heart longing for God. Chapter, or chapter 3, verse 2. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night darkness and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. To which Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Do you see the darkness in Nicodemus, the assumptions, looking for signs, the heart longing for God? This This is a man still in darkness, but it seems like a man that is starting to ask the right questions. He's starting to wonder. The Spirit is doing a work where he is starting to see some light come on. And he has come to the light. What better place to be? What Jesus finds in Nicodemus, in Jerusalem, in us, apart from the work of the Spirit, he finds dark hearts. But what Jesus founds is a family of light born from above. Look at verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's telling Nicodemus, listen, I have come down. I am God in the flesh, the Son of Man, pointing back to the prophet Daniel, the Son of Man who is this exalted human figure that is unmistakably God himself. And he's saying, I was sent down. This is the incarnation. This is Jesus being God in the flesh. But then if you go to verse 14, he says this: "And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life." You know what John 3:16 is, or many people do. John 3:16 may be the most popular verse in at least American history. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But what people don't often see is the context of John 3.16 is John 14 and 15. John 3.14 and 15 come directly from Numbers 21. In Numbers 21, this is what's going on. Israel is following Moses in the wilderness. And God is providing food for them every single day. He has provided the water that they need. Are they in a desperate place? Yes, they are in a desperate place. But as our hearts are often prone to do in times of COVID, in times of societal tension, in times of giving ourselves to all sorts of words out in the world but not coming back to the world or to the word, our hearts easily grumble. And that's what the Israelites did. It says in Numbers 21, they begin to grumble against Moses and against God. They say, we don't have any water, we don't have any food. And then it's almost humorous humorous if it wasn't so depraved. They said, oh, and we hate this food you gave us. And what God does in response to their grumbling, their complaining, their Their idolatry of their own needs, their own opinions, is to send fiery snakes among them. And these fiery snakes begin to bite people. Poisonous snakes. They weren't lit on fire. They were poisonous snakes that bit people. And people were dying quickly. People were going down. Death. Not sick. Dead. And the people cry out to Moses. And they say very clearly, we have sinned. We have sinned. Ask God to save us. And God tells Moses this I want you to make a serpent out of bronze, a red serpent, and lift this serpent up on a pole so that everyone who is bit can look at that serpent on the pole and be saved. So let's think of the reality here. Their sin has brought judgment from God, and there is death in judgment. They understand their sin, and they cry out for salvation. And God says, lift up something that might not even make sense, does not have any healing powers in and of itself, but look on that. Look upon that in faith believing God's promise that you will be healed and everyone who did was healed imagine those people getting bit seeing one another bit some saying look at the serpent others perhaps saying whatever this is just one of Moses' hokey things again look at the serpent there's nothing up there i got to fix myself i got to figure out how to how to how to do better And yet the serpent was lifted up high and exalted for the people to look on and believe that they could be saved from the judgment of God. See, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, listen, you're a ruler of the people of Israel, right? You should understand how to get to God, right? You should be able to look at Romans 20 or at Numbers 21 and understand that you are a sinner, bitten and deserving judgment, right? Yet you can't understand these things. And so I will be lifted up that all who look on me and believe in me as their only means of salvation from their guilt and from God's judgment will be saved. This is belief, brothers and sisters. This is belief for those who do not yet believe. Come to Christ and believe in him. This is good news. Jesus is raised up, as it says in 2.20. He doesn't just die at the cross. He is raised up, and this brings great conviction to his disciples that they are resurrected people. What else does he talk about in this chapter? He talks about being born from above. Yeah, it says born again. And in American parlance, we often think about being born again. Are you born again? Are you born again? Are you born again? Again, it's this interesting play that Jesus has. That John uses that Jesus said, born again is also just as easily and just as faithfully interpreted, translated as born from above. Again, it's not the will of the Father or of the flesh that anyone would be saved, but the will of the Father to draw them in. And so there's this beautiful reality that Jesus is like, the Spirit's got to come, and he's got to give you a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart of light. And when he does, he gives you the right to become a child of God, to no longer be a rebel, a grumbler, to no longer be on the outs with him, out beyond the court of the Gentiles, but to approach and be forgiven. And when someone is born from above or born again, they are born into the family, into the family of light, with Jesus as the head of that family. The Father's love, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, is set on all who trust him. It is his will to make them his. But at the same time, it's, it's our will to trust him, It's this wonderful, mysterious reality that God calls and we also respond. I was thinking through, because sometimes people say, well, what what if I'm not called? And some people can say, "That's, that's a major point of doubt for me. I would ask you this. Instead of asking, what if I'm not called? Ask yourself the question, what if I am? What if I am? If I am called, I'm gonna look at Jesus the one high and lifted up and trust him and him alone to be saved. Let me finish up with this. Christ, as we talked about, was zealous for his father's house. This was proven in his incarnation, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He went all the way to the mat for us and for the father's glory because he is loved by the father from the beginning of time. In Christ Brothers and sisters, we are to be zealous for our Father's house as well, for him to be worshipped through his people. So let's think about how this can apply to us a little bit. I want us to think about ourselves as temples, as Paul often talks about us, as temples of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes to live in an individual, they are akin to the temple. They are not to be worshipped, but they have the Spirit of God dwelling in them? Would we allow the light of Christ to pierce our darkness? Would we consider this? Are there booths that we construct within the the personal temple of who we are that block the glory of Christ from being seen? Elevation of other identities rather than our primary identity as a son or daughter of the light. It doesn't mean that other identities don't matter in life, but they must always, always, can I say it a third time, always be secondary. Always be secondary to our primary identity as those who have been willed by the Father to be called his children, fully and eternally loved. If we ever get those identities backwards, then we are interrupting the plan of God to call the nations in to worship Him. And if we ever let those identities become primary, they are secondary to our own worship of the Father, and that is sin. That is disobeying the first commandment. That is sin. See, the thing is, the Father knows us. He knows how easily we construct booths. They could be Opinionated booths, they could be social media booths, they could be attitudes towards others in our lives type booths, they could be secret sins, they could be public sins, they could have been, they could be all kinds of things that we can elevate above our sonship and our daughtership in Christ. And the Father knows this, how desperately we need Him to constantly tear them down and make us ready vessels allowing all who want to approach Christ to see Christ in us and perhaps be called to him through us as Nathaniel was through Philip. Personal temple. How about the family of EBC? This is our individually corporate zeal. Each of us as believers corporately zealous for the house of the Lord but then brought together in one house, this local church. Romans 12, 9 says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Let our love for one another be genuine. May we be zealous in that love. I think sometimes, as I, man, there's a whole lot of stuff going on thinking this week. I am concerned pastorally that the deluge of words outside of ourselves are turning the church of Christ more and more into people of words rather than people of the word. We are looking for words and being identified by our own words or other words rather than being identified by the word. I see this especially in social media. This is where we see so much of the battleground today, don't we? Battleground. It should not be a battleground for the people of Christ. See, here's the thing about social media posts. We're talking about characters as we're going through the book of John. If you think narratively within plays or dramas or whatever, good characters are characters with depth. You understand them. They have have good and they have bad about them. You, You understand their life stories, their motivations. When you get on social media and you post, you flatten who you are. You flatten who you are. You are based only upon what you post. It is only based on something taken out of context, and you say, this is contextualized for me. Take it or leave it. Political or social slogans can become signals either of virtue or vice, acceptance or cancellation. So I would ask us and ask you, would we consider, if you are a a son or a daughter of the king, would you consider a social media fast, for the sake of loving one another zealously and also for the sake of the light of the world, that people who God might be calling to himself would not see you as a stumbling block, as a booth builder that keeps the court of the Gentiles from offering a place of worship. We are to be clean courts for others to approach and be forgiven. Not that we do the forgiving, but we are clean that others may approach. Brothers and sisters, differences between us should not cause us, should cause us to wonder. If we have political differences, we have differences about COVID or about the tensions in our society, about the election coming up. These sorts of things, when we get our identity, our primary identity right, these things should cause us to wonder, not to war. All right, so I know that you're my sister in Christ, and apparently we have some different views on this. Can we find out about what informs those views? Should cause us to wonder and not to war, to ask and not to assume, to be quick to risk conversation rather than rebuking quickly, to listen in love and not to lambast in anger. I I saw a great um, Instagram post by Lecrae the other day, and he said this. He says, listen, he was talking about Black Lives Matter and painting the differentiation between the organization and the slogan. And he says this, listen, I understand those who use it and those who don't. And then he said the key thing in the entire talk, I'm kingdom all day, every day. And he realized there are people that will use that and will not use it, that are also kingdom people too. Black lives matter because black worship matters. You know, another way to think about this, you know, we're praying about how the Davises can go to the Baltics, praying that we can send them as a church to take the gospel to the Baltics. No one would balk at the idea that Baltic lives matter because Baltic worship matters. Basically, when we send missionaries to places, that's what we're saying as a church. We need to think more wisely about these things and ask better questions of one another. Let ourselves be 3D family rather than flattened avatars of ourselves. The church makes a unique statement every Sunday. It's the preached word that makes clear that our issues of sin are what they are and offers the hope of the gospel. I would challenge each of us, do our own personal statements, offer both of those as well. Both making clear the sin and brokenness of the world and offering the hope of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we must be open to our corporate blind spots as a local church, and that's partly what is inspiring SEEK this summer. We are going to go through this book, edited by Russell Moore and Andrew T. Walker, called The Gospel for Life Series, The Gospel and Racial Reconciliation. We're going to be gathering on Tuesday nights from 7 o'clock until 9 o'clock. The women will start on June 30th. The men will meet on July 7th. We'll have various leaders of those discussion groups, they will be very text-based, so we'll have some opportunity for talking about stories, but also interacting with the ideas of this book. We have lots of copies out there that you can take for free as you're leaving. Those of you out there, we'll figure out how to get them to you before it starts. We'll meet down, we're actually gonna meet in here for those of us who want to gather together. We're also gonna have Zoom links available, and then we'll put the Zoom up on the screen for whoever does not feel comfortable here. Okay? so that we can all have those interactions. We need to be, have a gospel grid that is formed so we can understand what is going on around us. Finally is this. The church, the capital C church, is the family that Christ has formed. We are a house intended for people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, as John makes clear in Revelation, using that term the complete seven times. He wants to make sure that the fullness of the house of God is the fullness of the four corners of the earth brought into the house of Christ. So we don't, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he's like, I spend very little time worrying about the future of the church of Christ. Christ has died and risen again. He's the risen one. He's gathering all of his people to himself. I don't spend a whole lot of time worrying about it but that doesn't release us from the responsibility of today walking in justice and mercy and humility as we seek to see God's kingdom and him draw in more and more people. May the word form us this week. May we wrestle with some of these things. If you're challenged by some of these ideas, wrestle with them. Ask the Spirit for wisdom, ask him for love, ask him for understanding that he might form us more and more in the image of Christ, the light. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for being merciful to us. We thank you that in your wonderful ways you have brought forgiveness to those who are called to yourself. I pray that there would be people that believe on you today, Jesus. There would be people who do believe in you that would have their priorities again reordered by your Holy Spirit, that that would happen to me too, that we would constantly have the booths in our courts torn down, that others may see the glory of Christ through us. We praise your name, O high and exalted one, our Lord Jesus. Amen.